3: Now, the WBBM Noon Business Hour. It's 1203 on Thursday afternoon, September 28th. Good afternoon. Thanks for joining us on the Noon Business Hour. I'm Rob Hart. The well known signature room near the top of the former Hancock building has closed. We'll cover that in our next segment. But right now, it's a busy day of data, including reports on pending home sales, housing affordability, and consumer spending. Joining us on the Village of Bedford Park Business Line, reminding you to bring your your business home is Gus Fauché, Chief Economist, PNC Financial Services, based in Pittsburgh. Gus, thank you for joining us today. And this is uh, uh, an interesting statistic, is, is it's this is the toughest it's been to afford a home in 15 years. Of course, that was right before the bottom fell out of the housing market and took uh, nearly a decade to recover. And it's, it's a combination, Gus, it sounds like, of high mortgage rates and a lot of homeowners who were locked into those uh, great rates they got at the height of the pandemic.
4: That, that, that's right. Uh, so certainly mortgage rates are now up above 7%. They haven't been there in a long time. And then with uh, people who have low mortgage rates, they don't want to move. So the inventory for homes to sale uh, homes for sale is very low right now, so that 's keeping prices elevated. so we did see house prices fall in late two thousand and twenty two but they 're starting to increase again in two thousand and twenty three and that 's making it less and less affordable for people who are trying to buy a home
3: let 's get the historical perspective here, and that is what was the housing market like in the time between the end of the great financial crash in in two thousand seven and two thousand eight and the start of the covid nineteen pandemic What were rates like in the uh, the second decade of of the 21st century, and you know how much movement was there inside the housing market.
4: You know, rates rates were fairly low on a historical basis, depending on when how you look at it. They were around you know four or five percent or so. Certainly, much lower than what we have now. Um, you know, people a lot of people had bought homes prior to the uh, you know during the the. Boom in the housing market in 2005, 2006, and weren't looking to, to buy again. And then we also saw a dearth of home building from 2007 roughly through 2018 or 19. And so what that meant is, is that we just don't have many homes out there right now. The supply of homes has been running under the demand, and that's putting upward pressure on prices and reducing affordability.
3: And then is there any sign of uh, relief for people who want to possibly lock in a lower mortgage rate, or is that simply up to the uh, Federal Reserve and the bond market?
4: I, I think it, it depends on monetary policy at this point. Uh, you know, we, we, if anything, interest mortgage rates have moved higher recently. Uh, the Fed has said that they're going to keep the Fed funds rate higher for longer. Uh, so I, I think we will start to see lower mortgage rates later this year, but they're only going to de- decline very slowly. And I think that affordability is going to remain a problem uh, probably until second half of 2024.
3: And that would explain why pending home sales dropped seven point point one percent in the month of August uh, compared to the month before, simply because you do have that combination. Higher rates and a lot of people who are happy in their homes and happy with the mortgage they're paying right now.
4: That, that's exactly right. I mean, there just is not much inventory out there. And then when you look at where mortgage rates are, what your monthly payment is going to be if you move, uh, that's a strong deterrent. And I think we'll see people staying put in the near term.
3: Consumer spending revised downward in the second quarter showing it was a lot weaker than previously thought. What does that mean for the Fed's decision making? and is that uh, necessary does that take some of the uh, intensity out of inflation?
4: Uh, you know, consumer spending growth is still accelerated in the first half of 2023 compared to late 2022. Uh, the labor market remains strong. And so I think that uh, the Fed is still rightfully concerned that uh, strong consumer spending growth is adding to inflationary pressures in the economy. So I, they will want to keep monetary policy tight in the near term, at least until they see a more significant slowing in inflation.
3: Gus Fauchet, Chief Economist, PNC Financial Services in Pittsburgh. Thank you for joining us today. Coming up, a well-known Chicago restaurant known for its amazing views has closed. This is the WBBM Noon Business Hour. The famous Signature Room restaurant near the top of the former John Hancock Center has been shuttered. Let's get the latest now from Izzy Karish, president of Hospitality Works, a.k.a. the restaurant coach in Chicago. Izzy, thank you for joining us today. And I guess this is another symptom of what ails the Magnificent Mile these days.
5: It absolutely is. And this is uh, a real blow to Chicago. I mean, we've lost some of our longest and best restaurants over the last three years. And uh, this was one of the last of the uh, Chicago icons. So it is, it's, it's a real loss.
3: And North Michigan Avenue has been dealing with uh, just a number of problems, uh, some of which are just, Simply based on ongoing, you know, nationwide economic trends, uh, they tried to do it. You know, obviously, um, uh, COVID nineteen and a whole year of uh, of tourism shutting down and businesses shutting down and and the entire kind of downtown office ecosystem uh, decamping to home certainly didn't help. And then the slow recovery of tourism, the fact that shopping kind of dropped off, uh, ongoing public safety issues. You put all of that together, and it's really hard to make a restaurant dependent on tourist income go?
5: Not only uh, the tourist income, but you know, the signature room was one of those places that corporations would have all of their functions. You know, so you have a couple hundred people, you go to the ninety fifth and you'd have your function there. But what's happening today, you know, ever since COVID, very few people are, are working downtown. There's none those corporate functions essentially have gone away. So a lot of that uh, additional business, the uh, banquets, the special occasions for big companies, uh, that's gone down. And certainly, you know, there's a lot less people in Chicago during the week. I mean, people are working three days a week and uh, and then they're not sticking around. So uh, that and uh, of course, you know, so they, their sales are down and uh, labor cost is up 20 or 30 percent in the last two years. That is very hard to sustain.
3: It, it's an interesting trend too, Izzy, about just restaurants with a view in Chicago, because last year the Mid-America Club at the top of the Aon Center, the former Standard Oil building, announced it was closing its doors, which just leaves the Metropolitan Club in the former Sears Tower as a place where you can dine above the clouds. And uh, it, the, 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 the property owner is putting this space uh, up for lease. Someone else can make a turn it into a restaurant, but does it potentially have a future as a private club, or could it be a premium dining location once again?
5: You know, it, it could be, but uh, again, that that rent is going to be substantially uh, higher, and uh, and somebody could end up having similar problems to what the 95th is going through today. So they may have to, if it's going to be, you know, a restaurant, uh, turn it into something that. Uh, is going to pull people in on a regular basis. And I'm not quite sure what that magic formula is today. Uh, based on everything
3: izzy you are the restaurant coach and so you've probably uh, dealt with some distressed properties in the past but based on your experience and also based on uh, your conversations i would imagine with restaurant tours across chicago uh, what are some things that need to happen uh, to really reverse the fortunes of north michigan avenue which is uh, kind of uh, taken its lumps over the last couple of years
5: You know, it has. And, you know, some of the things that I've seen, some of the things that our clients are doing, when we are struggling at all of our different spaces, large spaces especially, uh, we're going to the landlord and saying, look, we, we just can't sustain this. We need, you know, a partnership, some help to lower some of our costs. Can you lower our rent for X amount of time? Can we defer things? Whatever it is it takes to get people through. But, if you know, all things being the same all the time, the only option is to, uh, and we've done this at some larger spaces, is uh, renegotiate the space and cut our space in half um, just to keep uh, keep the restaurant going. So these are tough things, but it, uh, a good restaurateur is going to try to work with their landlord, the city government, you know, anybody else they can to, to come in and, and help them out. Otherwise, we're going to have more and more of these closings, and we're not going to be left with uh, – you know, any of the great restaurants that Chicago has been known for.
3: Izzy Karish, president of Hospitality Works, a.k.a. the restaurant coach in Chicago. Thank you for joining us today. Coming up next, the strike by the United United Auto Workers is expected to expand.
5: Credit, debit and totally free. The WBBM Noon Business Hour continues.
3: We're set to learn tomorrow the next move in the strike against the big three automakers in Detroit. Let's get an update from Jeff Gilbert, CBS News Automotive correspondent based in Detroit. Jeff, thank you for joining us today. So this is the strategy going forward? Every Friday morning, they're going to announce which plants are going to be hit by a job action. Now, does this mean that the uh, facilities uh, that were struck last week will go back to work starting tomorrow?
6: No, I've heard from sources within the union that they don't plan to send anybody back to work, that this is just going to be a steady escalation of the strike with more Facilities added, not necessarily on a weekly basis. They could speed this up if they wanted to or slow it down, but that's the idea just sort of turn up the temperature as we go.
3: The two parts facilities in the Chicago area are the two so far that have been affected by the UAW strike. Now, last week, uh, UAW leadership announced that uh, Ford would not be a part of that week's job actions because there was some progress on talks. Is that still the case?
6: Well, that was the case last week. We'll have to wait till tomorrow morning to see what UAW President Sean Fain says. Some observers tell me that they think that Ford probably will be hit this week just because we haven't seen any huge progress since last week. So the union may feel it needs to kind of give Ford a little bit of a jolt.
3: We're talking to Jeff Gilbert, CBS News Automotive correspondent based in Detroit. Uh, President Biden did visit the striking auto workers in the Detroit area this week. It's the first time that a president has walked a picket line. And what type of impact did that have, uh, not only on the people participating in the strike, but also on the tone and tenor of the negotiations?
6: It was probably a boost for the people who were on the picket line. Probably won't really have any impact on the negotiations. And by the way, uh, Mr. Biden did not actually walk the picket line. He stood there, shook some hands, and talked to people on the bullhorn. So, didn't actually pick up a picket sign and, and walk along with them. And
3: then, when it comes to uh, uh, facilities across the country that are being, uh, uh, that could potentially be struck tomorrow, uh, does it sound like the focus is still on the uh, parts manufacturing facilities, or are they going to move on to more uh, actual factories where they make the cars?
6: I think Sean Fain likes to keep people guessing, but my guess would be this time it will be actual factories. Probably not the big pickup factories that make the big profits, but factories that are somewhere under that level just so they can have a gradual escalation. So keep a close eye on the Ford plant in Chicago. It could be a target. And then
3: then very quickly, Jeff, uh, are there signs of movement on the UAW side? Uh, There were some indications that maybe the union is backing off on some of their wage demands.
6: Well, there's a report today, and I believe it was Bloomberg saying that what the union would really like would be a 30 percent pay hike. They had been asking for 40 percent, and the car makers had been offering 20. I mean, that's negotiation. Somebody has got to give, and usually there's some movement on both sides.
3: Jeff Gilbert, CBS News Automotive correspondent based in Detroit. Thank you for joining us today. Still ahead in Technology Thursday, a look at some of the best tech jobs of the future.
1: I'm Sandra
5: This is Chicago's News Traffic and Weather Station, News Radio
3: 105.9. The WBBM noon business hour continues. Good afternoon. I'm Rob Hart. These are the top stories on news radio WBBM. Police looked for an armed man who broke into a migrant shelter in the Gage Park neighborhood. A federal government shutdown moves closer to becoming a reality. It's Technology Thursday. A look at the best jobs as the tech industry moves into the future. Peloton and Lululemon announce a five year strategic partnership that is Lululemon. WBBM Business, the market. Markets are higher. The Dow is up 78 points. The Nasdaq is up 120. The S&P 500 is up 24. We have 68 degrees right now in Chicago under partly sunny skies going up to 72. It's 1231. Topping our news at the half hour, Chicago police are investigating a report of a break-in at a migrant shelter on the southwest side overnight. Officers were called at around 215 to the Gage Park Fieldhouse in the 2400 block of West 55th. Witnesses tell Investigators: Someone with a gun entered the building, but when confronted, the person ran off. No one was hurt. The Senate is marching ahead with a bipartisan approach to prevent a government shutdown. But on the House side, Speaker Kevin McCarthy is facing stiff opposition from members of his own party. I believe we need
7: a stopgap measure to keep government open and that's what we'll propose on Friday to be able to have keep the government open and while at the same time helping us secure the
4: border.
3: The Senate bill would fund the government adding six billion dollars for aid to Ukraine and another, another six billion for disaster relief in the U.S. It's 1232 as the noon business hour continues. Joining us on the Village of Bedford Park business line is reminding you to bring your business home as Tim Griske, senior portfolio strategist with Ingalls and Snyder based in New York. Markets are a little a little bit higher this afternoon, uh, keying off of a little bit of a recovery rally yesterday afternoon. So, what is driving the markets as we end the month of September?
7: And Rob, uh, yeah, we're seeing a, a rally here in stocks, which is good. A thing always. Uh, the market really has sold off in the last couple of weeks. Uh, it's all because of the Fed uh, lowering their long-term expectations uh, for. Uh, rate cuts. Uh, in other words, they are less likely to cut rates uh, next spring. Um, but you know, this is these are these are just what are called dot plots by the Fed. Uh, there's nothing uh, real about them other than their long-term projections. So, uh, to us, this was not a, uh, a sell-off that was going to last, and we're seeing uh, the market rebound nicely today.
3: Well, it seems like uh, as far as investors and traders are concerned, I mean, we're coming to the end of the quarter. So you're going to get the uh, third quarter uh, earnings statements uh, starting next week. So with the lack of uh, real uh, market movers as far as news and information is concerned, you're just uh, sitting around and just uh, arguing over what you have, what meager information you have until the next uh, big report comes along.
7: Well, I think that that certainly is true. Uh, we have earnings coming up over the next uh, several weeks or next month, even. Uh, you know, we've, if you look at the last couple of quarters uh, when earnings were reported, companies overwhelmingly surprised on the upside. And we're looking for the same thing to occur this quarter uh, in the near term. Big economic uh Measure tomorrow is the PCE index. This is the Fed's favorite measure of inflation, uh, and it's projected to continue to decelerate. So, uh, the Fed's job, uh, or the Fed is doing well with their job to lower rates. Uh, or to, to lower inflation by uh, keeping rates high.
3: We're talking to Tim Grisky, senior portfolio strategist with, strategist with Ingalls and Snyder, based in New York. Tim, thank you for uh, joining us once again today. And uh, when we talk about uh, uh, personal consumption and also consumer spending, and uh, that was revised down in the second quarter, and how does that fit into the larger Fed fight against inflation? Well,
7: Certainly, uh, income and spending, uh, which they also report tomorrow, uh, they were lowered uh, you know, last month, but um, you know, they're still at a very strong rate. Our economy continues to uh, plug along at a, at a good, decent growth rate, despite high levels of interest rates. Uh, so the economy is strong. Companies are strong. We think this is a, a good time to be invested.
3: As far as risk factors are concerned, how big of a risk is a government shutdown come Sunday?
7: Uh, it really is a non-issue, I think, in terms of the markets. Uh, you might see a knee-jerk reaction if there is a shutdown. We've seen this before. Eventually, Congress gets their act together, uh, and uh, they, they sign a new bill to uh, allow spending again. Um, you know, we, we go through this markets might have a very short-term reaction but over the longer term it's really pretty meaningless.
3: Now there is uh, one potential uh, wrinkle and that is if there is a government shutdown, all those economic reports that uh, spur discussion segments on the noon business hour and uh, also uh, that everybody relies on uh, won't be available for a couple of days and how does does that change anything if at all, especially when you're talking about a Fed that is data dependent? How do they make decisions if there's no data?
7: That's a good question. I think, you know, certainly over the short term, if there is a shutdown, there's lots of disruptions, including economic data. Uh, But then there'll be a catch up uh, when, uh, you know, this shutdown is over, if it if it ever occurs. Uh, And, you know, we'll, we'll then have the data that should have been released earlier we just really don't worry about the uh, this in terms of its impact on the market, certainly not longer term.
3: And then one thing that has come roaring back in the last uh, couple of weeks or a couple of months, and and if you go to a gas station, you know it has, is the price of oil. It is uh, above uh, $90 a barrel uh, once again, uh, now $91.60, uh, coming off uh, a little bit of a decline today. And one thing that's interesting is that even though the price of oil is above 90 Ninety dollars a barrel. You don't see the American-based fracking companies uh, racing into the breach to take advantage of those elevated prices because, uh, as far as they're concerned, uh, they know if uh, Saudi Arabia decides to turn the spigot back on, uh, they're going to be in a world of hurt.
7: Yeah, the you know the exploration development companies, the pipelines, and all that. You know, they are not. Uh, really trying to find new oil over on an overwhelming basis. Uh, you know they see the long term, and the long term means less and less fossil fuels. Uh, but I think it does make every energy investment that more valuable. Um, so we think energy is somewhere you have to be as an investor. Uh, and not overwhelming in your portfolio, but certainly a a decent weight because fossil fuels are not going to go away here.
3: Tim Griske, Senior Portfolio Strategist, Ingalls and Snyder in New York. Thank you for joining us today, answering an awful lot of questions this afternoon. Coming up next in Technology Thursday, what the future holds for employment in the tech sector. Cashing in with conversation, the WBBM Noon Business Hour continues. It's Technology Thursday, and this afternoon we're looking at what lies ahead for jobs in the tech industry. We're joined by Michelle Reisdorf, Chicago jobs expert with Robert Half in Chicago. Michelle, thank you for for joining us today, and I can't tell you the number of conversations I have had with people here, there, and everywhere where they, it turns to AI. And regardless of the industry, regardless of the discipline, regardless of how long they have been doing it, they all say, "Well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do this until AI takes my job." Whether you're a radiologist or a dentist or a radio news broadcaster or even somebody who uh, runs ai programs for a living but it seems like there are ways that you can stay ahead of that trend
0: absolutely so no doubt generative ai is definitely here to stay it's not going away you know even though there's some out there that you know wish it would or are fearing it and i think the most important thing to understand is that because it's here to stay we have to embrace it and learn about it and you know, work it into our job. It is not meant to be a replacement. It is meant to enhance many of the tasks that we do. And I think the more we get out there and learn about it and embrace it, the better we will learn it will be for all of us.
3: And if you master the technology of AI, or at the very least have a very good understanding of it and can explain it to other people in layman's terms, it sounds like that could supercharge your career.
0: Absolutely. You know, um, right now we're all learning on how it can embrace our jobs and, you know, automate a lot of things, administrative tasks for us that we don't like doing. But it's also creating a lot of new jobs, right? And uh, some people think, well, those jobs are only in technology. You know, if I'm not in technology, then, you know, what will happen to me? That's not true. We are seeing multiple examples of where AI is creating jobs in technology as well as other um, areas. For example, in legal, you know, a lot of times the data that AI is producing does have to be verified and ensure, you know, that it is correct before it's being used um, throughout all of our daily responsibilities. And so sometimes there are legal teams or um, data analysts that are fact-checking that work to make sure that what we are using is correct in our day-to-day.
3: We're talking to Michelle Reisdorf, Chicago jobs expert with Robert Half in Chicago. And in in some ways, especially in 2023, all companies are tech companies to a certain extent.
0: Exactly. Absolutely. And And the more that we can embrace that, the better it will be for all of us.
3: Well, on that subject, then, um, if you want to become an app developer or a, an, an, an engineer or a data analyst or a cybersecurity specialist, uh, you don't necessarily have to knock on the doors of, of Google or Meta or Microsoft to uh, turn that into a fairly lucrative career.
0: Correct. You know, I think, number one, keeping an open mind, but number two, Seeking that additional training, sometimes you're going to find the company that you work for currently today will be willing to pay for training, offer you training, get you more training, and then there's all types of boot camps available now. You don't even have to go back for some sort of four-year degree. Um, You might find that there just might be a course or a certification that you need to pursue in order to further help you understand how AI impacts all of our jobs.
3: Now, it seems like there are two audiences for this particular interview. The the first audience and the most obvious one is someone who may have a 20-year-old at home or a 21-year-old at home. They're in college right now. They're trying to figure out, what am I going to do with my education? And it's get into those fields right now. But let's say you've been in the business for maybe 25 years or 30 years, and you have a, a couple of decades left to run to retirement. Uh, how much of a pivot do you have to do career-wise to make sure you're in one of these lanes?
0: Yeah, you know, I don't necessarily know that it's so much a pivot as it is just being willing to embrace. And I can use myself as an example. You know, I sit in that Gen X to, you know, early baby boomer, and we're finding AI being used in our jobs today. And for me, I don't have to become an expert, but I have to be willing to embrace it and use it and test it. And I can tell you, I've had multiple instances over the last month where I've just jumped into chat GPT or BARD and tested it out and been completely shocked at what I've been able to learn and how it's helped me do my job better. But absolutely, you know, the Gen Zers and the Millennials are full on embracing AI technology and absolutely should pursue opportunities where they see AI being used in the future as a company, in a, in a role, et cetera.
3: And that, that is a very good point that you raise. And, and obviously do it in a setting where it won't cause any harm uh, to your current employer. But uh, just jump in there and play around with it. And I think you would be surprised at the things you learn just by uh, poking around.
0: Yeah. What we're finding today is a lot of organizations are setting guidelines and protocols on how it can be used within their organization, right, while we all learn about it and and find out. And so, you know, open communication is the best thing to do. You know, talk to your boss about it. Ask how your company will use it. You know, ask if you have an opportunity to learn about it. But I can't stress enough embrace it because it's here to stay.
3: Michelle Reisdorf, Chicago Jobs Expert with Robert Half in Chicago. Thank you for joining us today. Join us at this time tomorrow for Entrepreneur Friday and still to come, bringing together athletic wear and exercise equipment. The WBBM Noon Business Hour continues. Peloton and Lululemon are teaming up in an effort to boost both companies. Let's examine the partnership with Dana Telsey, CEO and Chief Research Officer of the Telsey Advisory Group in New York. Dana, thank you for joining us today. What does this partnership do? Uh, How how does one benefit the other? I mean, Peloton's issues are well-documented, but uh, Lululemon was kind of a pioneer in the athleisure space.
1: Yes, and first of all, thank you for having me. I think it's incrementally positive for both, certainly a little bit more for Peloton than for Lulu. The partnership is incrementally positive for Peloton, given the association with Lulu and the brand strength that they have. And frankly, Lulu shows that it gives Peloton a vote of confidence in the quality of their content. The content is the key aspect that is of value for Lulu so they can eliminate their ability to obtain content and reduce the cost and yet gain exposure to Peloton's members where the demographic should be similar to Lulu. From Lululemon's perspective, they benefit from the exposure to the Peloton fitness community that helps get them some new guest acquisition and the cost savings that's associated associated with Peloton now serving as the digital content creator for Lulu. So I think it's a benefit to both. I think on the apparel side, it's a win-win given that Lulu sells the product to Peloton in a wholesale relationship. And Peloton gets co-branded apparel with the name of Lululemon, which is certainly quite valuable.
3: Now, Peloton has been trying to find its way, you know, since the end of the pandemic shutdowns, when it really was uh, a real, you know, Wall Street darling for the amount of growth it had, just because people still wanted to work out, but they couldn't uh, go to a gym or, or do anything like that. And it seems like the the way forward for for Peloton. Uh, with not only this Lululemon partnership, but other partnerships, is that they really see all of their value in licensing their content.
1: Yes, content is the key thing for Peloton. I think certainly... They're on the progress path now of cost optimization, but the additional revenue streams, whether it's the rental and sale of refurbished products, the wholesale partnerships with Amazon and Dix, the hospitality experience with Hilton, and the college partnerships with with universities like the University of Michigan – what Barry McCarthy has done is use their data and their content in order to pull the business forward in order to achieve, to achieve some of those quantitative metrics of getting to that free cash flow breakeven point.
3: And then what is the value of, let's say, the notoriety or the celebrity of some of their instructors? I mean, not too long ago, I mean, Cody, one of their instructors, was a, a contestant on Dancing with the Stars. Others have their own social media followings. Is that valuable to Peloton these days?
1: Yes, it is. A few Peloton instructors will now become Lululemon ambassadors and they'll promote Lulu Apparel. In this community, the recognition of those instructors that build a following is a value. And you're certainly showing with the functionality of Lulu products that there's the workout clientele in that community who know these instructors and they're part of their wellness regimen and routine.
3: Dana Telsey, CEO and Chief Research Officer of the Telsey Advisory Group in New York. Thank you for joining us today. If you missed any part of today's noon business hour, we'll have the replay podcast available shortly at WBBMNewsRadio.com and the Odyssey app.
2: We get it. Attention spans just aren't what they used to be. Heads in social media and eyes on Netflix. But what do people do with their ears? Well, for one, they're listening to audio. Americans spend 4.4 hours with audio every day.